a lot of Gen Z readers really seem to connect with it. And I was surprised at first, but then I was like, yeah, this makes sense. They're also, you know, they're a generation that's facing a huge amount of uncertainty and that feels like they've been lied to, like they were promised a future that doesn't exist. So it makes a lot of sense to me that these are themes that are really, really resonant to a lot of readers. Are you ready to head to art school? Book gang, I am so excited to introduce you to one of my favorite debut novelists of 2023, Antonia Ingress, the author of Sirens and Muses. First things first, if you're new here, I'm just so happy to bring you into the fold on this chilly day over here in the Midwest. I hope everyone is surviving this flurry of winter storms, and I really hope you have something cozy to drink today. I'm your host, Amy Ellen Clark from momadvice.com, a woman currently under an electric blanket, and I'm the voice behind the Book Gang podcast. This podcast celebrates under-the-radar books, backlist book selections, and debut novelists. Today, we are celebrating the romanticism of art school, yes, but also the very real challenges that students without financial means face when pursuing an art degree. Debut novelist Antonia Ingress is here to discuss the inspiration for her first novel, Sirens and Muses, and how pursuing an MFA program allowed her the time and resources to finally pivot from a career in teaching to her dream of writing. What I love the most about this conversation, though, is the surprising discovery that her novel, set during the financial crisis of the 2010s, has meant so much to Gen Z readers as they also face their own uncertainty and disillusionment with the world. If you didn't know about my own background, my creative pursuit started after the dot-com bomb imploded, which left us in crippling financial debt and uncertainty of our own. So when I see these themes explored in novels, it isn't just that I love that for other readers, it's that it deeply, deeply resonates so deeply with me. So today, we're going to dive into how success in the art world is often influenced by class, and that is not something we like to talk about, and what we can learn from Antonia's different characters from vastly different wealth spectrums as her dialogue showcases the scarcity of artistic resources for so many students. This is not the only book about art, though, because we're celebrating our favorite fictional moments with art themes that include amazing thrillers and literary fiction selections. I put together 20 seven incredible titles in today's bonus book list with the best books about art and artists encompassing genres like romance, contemporary fiction, and even memoirs. If you're a patron, surprise, check your inbox for a printable checklist that goes with your 2024 reading planner. I'm sorry, but I just love this assignment. I couldn't stop. I needed to like just give that to you today. So next week, we are going to launch our first Zoom of the year, where we will discuss Bluff by Michael Cardos. That is my thriller pick for the Mom Advice Book Club. In this story, two women team up to potentially win millions in a high-stakes poker game. It's the kind of book you can read in a day, so you are not too late. Patrons can now access an hour with Michael Cardos and join me on January 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for our chat. I am not exaggerating when I say that this might be the most five-star ratings we've received on a selection like this. I have a sea of messages from members who are just so wildly invested in this one that I think you'll really love it. You can join for $5 a month. I can't wait to meet you and be reading pals this year. Let's meet this month's guest. 
Antonia Ingress is the author of the novel Sirens and Muses. This debut was a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award and was named the best book of 2022 by Glamour, Pop Sugar, and Debutiful. She graduated from Brown University and received her MFA from the University of Minnesota, where she was a Winifred Fiction Fellow and a College of Liberal Arts Fellow. Born in Los Angeles and raised in Costa Rica, she lives in Minneapolis with her family. Now, let's report for our first day of art school. So, hi, my name is Antonia Angris, and my debut novel is called Sirens and Muses. Uh, Sirens and Muses is about four striving, struggling artists finding their way through love and life, uh, first at an elite art school in New England and later on in New York City against the backdrop of the Occupy movement. So it's a campus novel and a coming-of-age story about love and art and youth and ambition and figuring out who you are and what's important to you. Nailed it. I mean, I don't even have to set you up. You're like ready with this elevator pitch. I can tell you're a pro already. I have to say before we really get started and dive into your story, you have one of the best book club guides that I have ever seen. And I'm a pro at book club guides. A lot of times my struggle as a book club leader is that I cannot find like good information, good questions, but yours has like a whole theme and that also includes your headshot. So I want to hear a little bit about how you made your book club guide, because that is something that I think a lot of listeners will appreciate if they're leading groups. Yeah. So I cannot take full credit for that. I had a really wonderful marketing person at Random House who found the cocktail, which is, I don't know if you've tried it. It's really, really good. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it includes The main thing it includes is is a list of inspiration. So these are artists who uh, whose work that I drew from when I was writing the novel, and I include an image of each each of their uh, one of their pieces, and I have a little paragraph on what in particular inspired me. So reading through this list, I I like to think it's sort of like a almost like a behind the scenes of how I built this. You know how I built this book, I, I get asked a lot if any of the art in the novel is based on real work. And the answer is yes. So if you're curious about that, uh, the book club guide is a really great place to start uh, to get a sense of what artists inspired what particular pieces in the novel. I love that. As soon as I read your book, I was like, she has to be an artist. And it is funny because I talked to my husband who you know, he does art. He's also like a creative. And I was reading passages of your story out loud to him. And I was like, do you think she's an artist? And I didn't want to look it up because I thought you portrayed art so beautifully in your story. And he said, I don't think she's an artist, but I think she observes it a lot. So tell me a little bit about your experience with art because you know, that is a fun fact about your story. Yeah. Your husband's smart. So he's (laughs) Totally correct. I am not an artist and I'm not in the art world, uh, but I have been surrounded by art pretty much my entire life. Uh, my mom's an artist. Her uh, parents were art collectors, not at all at the level of Karina's parents, just to be clear. But uh, my mom, my par- my grandparents died when I was young and my mom inherited their collection. So I grew up around it. And then I'm also married to an artist. I'm, my husband is a painter. Uh, we met when we were very young. We were both 20 years old and in college. And I've been a model for a lot of his artwork. So I have sort of this experience of, of being 
I don't, I don't necessarily want to use the word muse, but but I definitely know what it's like to see yourself show up in, in somebody's work, you know, and so because I think I, I grew up able getting to see not only the finished art piece, but also sort of the long process through which it came to be. I became very aware of sort of this confluence of experiences and ideas and obsessions and trial and error that go into making a piece of art. And, you know, I should say I'm, I'm a novelist. I'm interested in people, first and foremost, and in, in their inner lives. So I wasn't interested in writing a, a piece of art criticism. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to write about characters, first and foremost. And I, I guess I should go, there's this other little piece of background um, that I think is important. And that's that despite growing up with an artist for a mom, I don't think I really became interested in art until I was in my late teens, early 20s. And it really didn't come alive for me until I was in college. I was a sophomore in college and I took a class with a really wonderful teacher named Rebecca Moholt, who actually passed away like six months after I took this class. I never got to reach out to her and tell her how much her, how much her, her teaching had been to me. But one of the things that she did was she talked not only about the art that we were studying, but the people who'd made it, right? Their talents and their flaws and their personal relationship and the inextricability of their art from, from its historical context. So even before I had begun to imagine this novel, which I didn't start writing until after college, this, this professor of mine, Rebecca Moholt, gave me a model for thinking and writing about art and artists, which was very accessible and jargon-free, and most of all, deeply human. And so that, to me, is what's most fascinating about art, not only the object itself and the power that it can have over the artist or the viewer or the collector, but also this the human story behind the art. And so that's what I was trying to get at in my novel. Well, you definitely did it. I thought that the not only that you had like these four very different voices, right? But you also have almost like active characters and more passive characters within mm -hmm. your story. And, you know, obviously the active characters for me really kept me flipping the pages. That's not to say that the passive voices were not as interesting, but there was a lot of friction within the classroom, which you played out within your story. So we have a professor who's like a seasoned artist. He has been known rather controversial for some of his pieces, but also that he comes with a different scope of what art means. Like, what does it mean to starve for art? What does it mean to sacrifice for art? And then he has a new student who's kind of bashing against his ideas of what art is. So why did you want to create that dynamic within the classroom? And, you know, did you feel like you favored one voice over the other? Because I definitely resonated with the professor, even though I wanted to like also kind of, I don't know, embrace the youthfulness and like the playfulness of the art, which is like more performance driven, more internet driven, uh, and, and just a different kind of of art. That's so interesting that you resonated most with Robert. I so I hear I hear lots of different things there. I've heard from many readers who really really are attached to the women. The, the, so there are two mm -hmm. female characters, two male main characters, and uh, it's it's just interesting to me to hear people from different walks of life sort of attached to to different main characters. So this novel, interestingly, actually did not start out as multi POV. Originally, Louisa was the only character or the only point of view character. And 
she is kind of a passive character. She's more passive than the others, at least. She's sort of the reader stand-in, right? She's the outsider in the novel. So she represents the position that most readers are going to find themselves in when they pick up the book. And it's definitely challenging to write a passive character. And at a certain point in the process, I realized this is actually a suggestion from my brother. I had these other characters in in the novel. So Karina was a character already. Preston was a character. Robert was a character. But none of them had points of view. Mm. And my brother read a draft or a, a partial draft and said to me, you know, you have these really interesting characters and I kind of want to get inside their heads. What if you gave them point of views and made this more of a web of life novel instead of a one one POV? And I was sort of stuck at that point. I didn't really know where to take the novel, so I decided to try it. And it kind of exploded the book for me. It it really like cracked it open in a way that I that I really, really needed at that point in the process. And so I began writing these these four different characters and it it did a few things for me. It gave me a way to balance this sort of passive main character that I'd begin that I'd begun with with what an old professor of mine calls Captain Happen character. So a Captain Happen character is a character who makes things happen because they for various reasons, because they're impulsive, because they have strong beliefs or opinions, or, or, you know, simply because they, they, they let their emotions get the better of them. So it gave me a way to kind of surround my passive characters with more active characters, and have the passive character storyline mainly be reactions to the chain of events set in motion by other people. It also gave me a way with these different ideas about art. So all these, you know, these four different characters have very different ideas about art, they have very different styles, they have very different approaches. They have very different philosophies. And the book, at least I hope the book is not coming down on any particular side. My 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 goal was really to let the reader make up their own mind. But it sort of gave me a way to put these different ideas into dialogue with each other that I hadn't achieved with one point of view. Yeah, I loved that element of it, I feel like it was almost a think piece about art. And now I'm always going to think about the Captain Happen mm-hmm. a character with the Captain, is it Captain Happen's character? Captain, Captain Happen, yeah. So this is an old teacher, uh, one of my grad school teachers, Charlie Baxter, would talk about Captain Happen characters. Now, that was very, that's a very useful sort of term for me when I'm, when I'm in my work thinking about who's, who's Captain Happen, who's making things happen in this yeah. scene. I love that. Well, I I want to talk about just the the context of the time period that you chose mm-hmm. too, because this is set in like 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to tie that to like Occupy Wall Street and what's happening in the world during this timing? So I started writing this novel right after I'd graduated from college when I was in 20, it, which was in 2013. So I was in college during that time period. And originally, I set the novel during that time period in part, you know, it was 2013. So it was not that far removed. Now it's like over 10 years ago, right? So it feels like forever ago. But at the time, it was like yesterday. And it was, that was just sort of a a convenient choice for me to write a campus novel during the time when I was a college student, because it meant that I knew, you know, I, I knew the cultural touchstones. I, you know, I could convincingly write about what it was like to be a college student then. And then the Occupy Wall Street storyline didn't really enter the picture until I was a draft or two in. And I was really interested in this idea about writing about politics and art. And 
then felt like this really natural fit to incorporate Occupy Wall Street because it was happening at that time. And because also my experience of Occupy Wall Street was that it really, it felt all encompassing when it was happening. And it encapsulated a lot of the anxieties that my peers and I were feeling as we came of age. And that I think a lot of the characters in the book are feeling. So it was, it was, it was a convenient way to sort of explore not only this idea of the relationship between art and politics, but also it also, you know, sort of encapsulated a lot of the anxieties about money and security and social mobility that the characters in the novel are feeling. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like there is a little bit of a rise of books publishing around that time and also around the recession, like 2008, Mm -hmm. because we are kind of going through that again. And Mm -hmm. aspects of those stories, you know, like the anti-capitalist movement kind of ties very well into those kinds of themes. And so for readers that might be a little bit older, in some aspects, it feels familiar, nostalgic. There's elements that have repeated throughout history. And so it has been really interesting to see that kind of resurging again within Mm -hmm. our our literature. And particularly in millennial fiction, it seems to be a time period that I've been seeing a lot of exploration. So that that is very interesting. I think it was, I mean, it it was hugely defining for me, right? It my generation entered the workforce and I I just remember feeling like the carpet had been pulled out from under me. Like Mm -hmm. like I'd been promised all these things growing up and none of like they were all a lie. And and it's really interesting to me because I get I get a lot of messages from Gen Z readers. And I think of my novel as a very millennial novel, but a lot of Gen Z readers really seem to connect with it. And I was surprised at first, but then I was like, yeah, this makes sense. They're also, you know, they're a generation that's facing a huge amount of uncertainty and that feels like they've been lied to, like they were promised a future that doesn't exist. So it makes a lot of sense to me that these are themes that are really, really resonant to a lot of readers, to a lot of young readers in particular. And and that, you know, this is a time period that's becoming that we're I had a couple people call it historical fiction and that just made me feel so old. But but that yeah, that this is a period of time where a lot of Gen Z readers, you know, were maybe not conscious of what was going on but now you know as as you know young 20 somethings they're sort of looking back at this time period and seeing seeing a lot of the echoes of what they're living through right now it is interesting i do think that what makes that time period work so well is the different generations even within a book club can talk about you know what they experienced i am you know, uh, Gen X. So I experienced uh, the dot-com bomb and the recession, Mm -hmm. and I feel like I've been through a lot too. (laughs) And so anytime that I can reflect on that, it is really interesting to see how that is coming back. And and it's like something that people want to talk about again. And revisiting that for me is like reminded me of of also that that feeling of the whole rug being pulled out from under us and how do we navigate this? So I can see how that might even be just as a suggestion. If you have a Gen Zer, this might be a, a great book to talk about with your Gen Zer if you're a mom and being able to like talk about how you know you actually remember a lot of these things and those feelings and and feeling 
you know, detached from your own story in, in many aspects, especially during times of, of great financial difficulty. So I really loved that element of the story. I do want to talk to about your choosing to do artists of different mediums, right? We're not all doing the same kinds of art. And I would imagine that that would have a lot of challenges for you to kind of research and prepare for. So how did you, you know, envelope yourself? You're talking about having, you know, obviously family members that have some art background, but what Mm -hmm. did you need to do research-wise to prepare for all these different viewpoints with art? So again, I did have sort of this advantage going in. Um, I went to college right next door to the Rhode Island School of Design, which is a very old and famous and prestigious art school. And while I was an undergraduate, I I started working as a figure drawing model there. Uh, It paid really well. It was like the best paying job I could find on campus, like twice as much as anything else uh, to just kind of like take off your clothes and uh, let a classroom of, you know, 19 year olds draw you. But I became really fascinated by the art students on campus right next door to mine who it seemed to me they were having a much more intense college experience than I was. You know, not only were they figuring out who they were, the way I think everyone does in college, but they're also sort of in this pressure cooker environment, experimenting with what kind of artist they were going to be. And I remember thinking, hmm, that would be an interesting setting for a novel. So I had access to a lot of their artwork just by virtue of being on the on the campus right next door to theirs. Probably the medium that I was most familiar with when I was when I first started writing the book uh, was painting, just because my my partner's a painter. My mom does a lot of work with textiles and sort of soft sculpture. So that was, you know, that was another medium that I felt that I could write about. But I think you might be pointing towards some of the internet art mm-hmm. that, uh, that that's in the novel. And, and, and in particular, Preston's work. He's, a, you know, pre- primarily a digital artist who does a lot of work in like Photoshop um, and he he runs this like this kind of trollish blog that a lot of art students are into. And he sort of represents kind of this like quintessential white male artist. And I wanted to explore his perspective and sort of that kind of work, which I think rubs people a lot of, a lot of people the wrong way, in part because I think he is an archetype who's sort of ubiquitous in the art world, for better or for worse. Um, but also because while I was researching this novel, I became really interested in sort of these sort of real life artist provocateurs. So I'm thinking of people like Brad Trammell and Jordan Wolfson, who are artists who are kind of reviled despite being really successful. And I find art as provocation really interesting because what I found is that few people will come out and express unabashed admiration for that kind of art but we still talk about it like we'll still pay attention to it and I think that's interesting to it's interesting to me because if you're having a reaction to it you're not indifferent so this is sort of a type of art that's courting a different kind of engagement with the audience where it's not asking for admiration it's not asking for you to buy it and hang it on your living room wall it's sort of asking for you to have a often negative reaction towards it. Yeah. And really, honestly, isn't that like, in a way, a degree of success with art Mm -hmm. is just that people are talking about you. They are talking about the work. I think it's it in some ways, like what we could maybe talk about as book clubs is thinking about AI and how it is changing the art world in a different way, not in a way that we agree with or necessarily love, but also that it is interesting to see. I mean, 
there are aspects of it that we have talked about at our dinner table and how it is changing some aspects of digital art. So I, I really loved that exploration. And although I didn't care for his uh, intentions within the classroom, I did find myself reading a lot of those passages out loud and thinking about them and thinking about how I felt about it and what does it really mean to be an artist, right? Which is what that, con- like the context of that within this classroom for a listener is that this professor has done things more of the old fashioned way of like being celebrated for like a more old fashioned kind of aspect of art and creating art and then gaining fame from it, but also did things that were controversial at the time. And now he has that same kind of like ripple effect happening in his classroom, but he is not really tolerating it as well and not seeing it for what it is. And it does ask us like, are, are people meant to starve for art? And, you know, is it unfair that some people get an upper hand, which also happens in that dynamic between these classmates, right? Because one of them is there on a scholarship and one of them has, you know, come in several generations in and is winning prizes as well for their art. So I love this idea that is exploring class and also like, what does it mean to be an artist? Do we have to sacrifice? Does that make our experiences more authentic than others? Mm -hmm. And I think art is hugely informed by class. And I think that's something that I have found that a lot of people don't like to talk about, or there's almost the sense, at least in school, that that's something that should be left at the door, right? That it's not relevant to, you know, the discussion of of art for art's sake, right? And I think that's, uh, I think it's so wrongheaded in so many ways. Uh, Art takes time. And in the case of visual art, it takes material resources, right? paints, canvases, you know, things that cost money. Um, it takes instruction. And all of those are things that have like that, that require capital, right? And art schools are notorious for offering very little financial aid. So the people who end up attending them tend to be from very affluent families. And, and the art world itself is driven by money, right? By the spending power of collectors who a lot of the time are millionaires and billionaires. And I think that's a problem, right? It's a problem when culture is produced by this small group of people. And when people from other class backgrounds, when marginalized people can't access the space or the resources they need to create, that sort of translates into a culture that's really flat and homogenous and ultimately results in an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And I in my experience, that feels like a conversation that people are are often unwilling to have. There's in in creative industries, it often sort of feels like there's people have secret money, and you wonder like, how is this person surviving? How is this person like making a living, and paying their rent? And often the answer is their family has money. And I'm not saying that that like that makes you a bad person to you know to use use your you know your inherited resources to you know further your artistic career there's nothing wrong with that but i i think people are unwilling to to talk about it openly mm-hmm. I, it has been interesting even just gen z talking about nepo babies right mm-hmm. i never was aware of that like it never even crossed my mind to think about 
you know, oh, well, their parents have money or they were in acting mm-hmm. or they were, you know, kind of have that help, you know, even just someone to give your name or like a little bit of push or some time um, that they would not normally have to, you know, help them cultivate a career. And it, it, to me, it is interesting that I think there is a little bit more transparency around that. But when I was growing up, I did think of it as more of an enchanted world. Like, you know, I, it's so amazing that they are able to do that. And why can't I? But I do think that that is such an important conversation about how these students are not coming in on equal grounds. And also that the professor came in on a different kind of scenario. And that gives us some, you know, friction and some dynamics and and some things to think about because yes, like supplies, creative supplies are expensive. And, you know, just, I definitely struggled and I was really grateful for people that helped me along my path. And I don't think that if I would have not had that, I definitely would not be doing what I'm doing now. And so those little helpers throughout their life help them have a little bit of an advantage in, in the art world. Mm -hmm. So I do want to talk about your experience writing this book because you started it in your 20s and I believe you finished it in your 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So let's talk about what do you think that your 30-year-old I had versus your 20-year-old I and how did that kind of develop with these two new lenses in your story? Well, one of the things that I found was that I I got sort of tired by the end of writing about very young people. When I started writing this book, I was very close to the age of most of the main characters in the novel. Um, And I was very close to, you know, their anxieties and their, you know, their concerns. And this book took me close to seven years to finish. So by the time I finished it, I was, you know, I was at a very different place in my life. I was in my early 30s. And I, I think I was more impatient with the characters as I got older. But I also had, you know, I think I had more empathy for them. And that the passage of time gave me sort of this, this, this distance that that made me able to imagine them as older people in a way that I don't think I, I, I would have been capable of when I was, you know, in my early 20s. I will say that my, my interest it just in in my work in fiction have shifted to that of I think a slightly older person. I'm writing a novel, another novel now that well, the characters in it are older and uh, their, you know, their concerns and their their preoccupations are, you know, a lot more to do with the, you know, the concerns and preoccupations that you tend to have in your 30s, right? Like parenthood and and aging and uh, you know things that these young people aren't thinking about. I will say that so Robert is sort of an outlier in the sense that he is a middle like he's a middle-aged man surrounded by these young people and he he was a character that who I whose POV I pulled in kind of later in the process and he really gave me a way of exploring the perspective of somebody older and a sort of like get, shining a different angle of light on these these young people who who sort of have really don't have a sense of what their futures might look like if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah did you think that the mfa program was really imperative for you for like developing this novel and what do you think you got out of that creative process that helped enhance your writing experience yes so the the mfa program was really important 
because it gave me time and it gave me financial support. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this goes back to money. Yes. Um, so when I started writing this book, I was teaching elementary school. That was my first job out of college. I did that for five years. I taught elementary school Spanish for um, at a small private school in New Orleans. And if you've ever taught elementary school, you know that it's very intense and draining job. I was writing this novel at night and on the weekends. Um, And often I was too exhausted to work on it. Uh, And eventually I realized after a few years of this that the book just wasn't going to get done unless I made material changes in my life. So I applied to MFA programs all over the country. And I got into uh, the program at the University of Minnesota, which offered me a two-year fellowship, which meant that I, I wouldn't have to teach for two years. And it offered me, you know, a stipend for three years to write, which meant that I was I would get paid not a lot of money, but I would get paid to write. And that made that made all the difference in the world that allowed me to finish the book. So I would say it was, you know, certainly it it was enormously helpful to, you know, work with really seasoned teachers um, who'd published multiple books. It was helpful to be, you know, to be in an environment with other people who loved reading and writing as much as I did. I, you know, I really made, I made lifelong friends. I found lifelong readers of my work. But the number one thing that my MFA program gave me was time and money. Mm, That's a very important thing (laughs) for anyone. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because we have had just a couple of authors that have come out of MFA programs. And it's always interesting to hear what the journey is like and what enhancements that that makes. But I think what you're sharing is really important for listeners because you're talking about you went from, you know, doing teaching to finally having the resources to actually pursue this writing career that you had been dreaming about for a long time. Yeah. Okay, for the second half of our conversation, we're going to be talking about our favorite books about art or artists. And I wanted to talk about a book that is a backlist selection that I thought had such great overlap to Antonia's book. It's called Life Drawing by Robin Black. This was actually published way back in 2014, so it is very vintage like me. It's very backlist. The story's narrator is a woman who is in, she's like in her late 40s, and she's a painter. Her name is Augusta, although she's known by most people as Gus. She has, outside of her marriage, had an affair with the father of one of her painting students. And she has confessed this to her writer husband named Owen. And basically, they have reached a point where they think, you know what, things are not going well in our marriage. We are going to basically flee our discomfort, go out to a farm in the country, try to start over. And that's basically where the novel is beginning. So basically, what ends up happening is a woman named Allison ends up moving into an empty house next door. And Augusta's really drawn out of some isolation that she's been experiencing because of this affair and starts to open up to her and what is happening. And as this new relationship deepens, the lives of these two households grow more and more tightly intertwined. And it just takes this one person to kind of intensify all the emotions and basically break everything open. I would say that the similarities aren't just like art itself. But it is a character-driven story. 
It also has a little bit of an overlap with your professor because I think what uh, Robin did so well is kind of tackle the idea of aging and how there's a vulnerability with aging. This is like someone who's trying to like weather those changes, just like the professor to their best of their ability, but being aware of our age makes us feel very vulnerable. It's also pulling in a lot of real life struggles of marriage and what it's like when that is slipping away. And so I highly, highly recommend it if anyone has not read it and and loves character drawn stories and, and finds that Sirens and Muses is a book that resonates with them. It's called Life Drawing by Robin Black. And again, it was published in 2014. So I definitely think it fits this assignment. And now I am excited because you are bringing something I consider to be under the radar, but I have read this book and it is excellent. It's called Self-Portrait with Loy. So tell me a little bit about this because I think listeners will really, really love this one. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's so great. So Self-Portrait with Boy by Rachel Lyon. So it's set in 1990s gentrifying Brooklyn and the main character is a photographer a young photographer named Lou Ryle and she is scraping by absolutely a struggling striving artist she's in danger of eviction and then one day she's taking self-portraits in her um in her studio in her studio apartment and her upstairs neighbor's child falls to his death outside of her window and she accidentally captures it so she captures a this is where the title Mm. comes from this is a self self portrait of her with a falling child in the background and sort of it's it's this accidental masterpiece and in the aftermath of the tragedy she is drawn into a friendship with the boy's grieving mother and she's facing this increasingly painful moral dilemma right this is a photograph that could jumpstart her career but at what cost right So this is a really, really beautifully written, really addictive and spellbinding exploration of sacrifice in art and of, you know, this real moral cost of ambition. Yes, I remember reading this. So I am almost a thousand percent positive that this ended up on a best books of the year list that the the year it came out. Uh, The cover is very striking. So definitely look it up. But I did the audio book and this opening like with this boy falling and her, you know, seeing that happen on this film, right? And then she sees this capture. And the fact that it's so beautiful and could be the thing that launches her into fame is that really thick dilemma, right? Because, you know, obviously, she's developing that relationship, and it creates that feeling that you're like, I really can't share this. But oh my gosh, this is one of the most beautiful things that I've ever made. The audiobook is excellent. If people are looking for an audiobook, I thought the performance on that one was so good. And it almost had a thriller feeling to Mm -hmm. it because of what happens in, in that sequence. And it's also playing on that idea of like, you are a starving artist, right? And now you have this, you know, image that could definitely launch you into fame right i believe that this is getting made into a movie oh is it mm-hmm. yeah oh. i think i think i saw that the author rachel lyons sold the film rights so hopefully we'll be getting a movie of this oh that would be year. amazing oh yeah. my gosh it's such a great one i i definitely would echo that that is a wonderful wonderful book 
Um, the one that I want to talk about next is one that we actually did for our only mom advice reading retreat, which happened just prior to the pandemic. But this was a book by Fiona Davis. It's called The Masterpiece. And I had selected it just because I think Fiona Davis is so great for book clubs. She always gives you a little bit of historical fiction details, so you have something to look up after, but it's not really bogged down by anything. You you feel like it's a light summary read, but then after you like read it, you're like, wow, she really did an astounding amount of research. I've never known about this. And one of the details in this is basically it's that Grand Central Terminal used to house an art school, which is something that I never knew. All of Fiona's stories are set in New York, so they all have New York City landmarks. And you always learn a little bit about New York history. So basically, in this story, we are given a dual timeline. We have Virginia. She's 50 years later working in the information booth at the Grand Central Terminal. And the building has a planned renovation that may be removing some really beautiful portions of its history. And when Virginia stumbles upon an art school that's been boarded up and abandoned, she finds a beautiful watercolor that may be worth something. And Virginia takes it upon herself to find out who the artist is and to learn about the history of the school. I looked up Fiona um, to see if she did any interviews about this. And she did an interview with Book Trip where she shared some really surprising elements of the story. And they asked her, like, of all the things you learned about Grand Central Terminal, what was the most surprising to you? And she said, my first surprise was the existence of Grand Central School of Art, which was co-founded by John Singer Sargent and ran for 20 years. It was located on the top floor of the East Wing, and it had 900 students a year. It was the perfect setting for a story. Also, I was intrigued by the Campbell apartment, which is situated on the west side of the terminal, which used to be the office for a businessman named John W. Campbell. He created an ornate Italian Renaissance fantasy inside with leaded glass windows, even a grand balcony with a pipe organ. And I was shocked to learn that in the 70s, it was taken over by the railroad police who installed ugly paneling over the walls dropped the ceiling and converted the wine cellar into a holding cell. And you would have never guessed that the glory hidden behind underneath. And luckily it's restored. And I guess now it's a swanky bar. So that was a really fun detail that I never knew about. I need to read this. I I also had no idea that there was an art school at Grand Central <laughs> Station. That's crazy. Yeah, she her books are just so like enjoyable and readable and always like learn something. And it was a really fun one for our book club to to discuss. And I highly recommend it. I know she just wrote one about the Rockettes. So uh, we actually had Fiona Davis on the show and she talks about all that she learned about the Rockettes, but they're all set in New York. So they have like a New York City landmark. And I always learn something new. And I had asked her about like, do you ever think you'll run out of material? And she was like, no, not in New York. Like there's so much to learn about <laughs> in New York. <laughs> so I want to talk about your next book. Uh, it's My Name is Asher Love. Can you tell me a little bit about this book and why you wanted to bring it today? Yeah. So this is one of my favorite novels in the world. This is called, it's called My Name is Asher Love by Hein Potok. And I never know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly this is a deep backlist book this book came out in 1972 so long before i was you born beat me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a classic of jewish literature so this is a novel about a hasidic jewish boy growing up in the you know a very cloistered hasidic community in brooklyn and he he from a very young age 
is incredible an, an incredibly gifted painter a prodigy essentially and over the course of the novel it's sort of this coming of age story he's he pursues his obsession with painting at the cost of his relationship with his family and you know this the, the really cloistered deeply religious world that he's he's being brought up in so it's a it's this really gorgeous and heartbreaking novel about the conflict between tradition and individualism. And this novel is, you know, it's it, it's autobiographical. So Haid Potok also grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community and his parents, you know, discouraged his pursuit of writing mm-hmm. uh, and painting as well. He was, a, he was a visual artist. So this author was really intimately familiar with this conflict between you know, pursuing pursuing your gift and hewing to the traditions of of the world that you've been brought up in. So it's a really gorgeous, uh, character driven novel set again again set in the 1970s in New York City. If you want to learn about um, the Hasidic Jewish community, this is a great you know book to sort of gives you a peek into that world but it's just it's a really beautiful novel oh i love it well you had me at backless coming of age set in the 70s like i'm i'm all about it it sounds like a perfect book and i love learning about other cultures and this really really fits the bill for our our show today so i'm really excited that you brought that and i love it when people bring like hidden gems that i don't know Mm -hmm. about and i have not heard of this book before so that's a really great one well i want to end with your your last book that you had for us because I only brought two today and I want to hear about your third one. Okay, so this one is a thriller. And I am always so impressed by thriller writers because I cannot write. I'm like such a character-driven writer. I cannot do plotty. And this is this is a just a perfect thriller. So this is called Fake Like Me by Barbara Borland. Um, and it's a thriller set in the art world. So the narrator is an unnamed painter who is on the cusp of this career making show when a studio fire destroys her entire body of work. And she has to, she decides not to tell her gallerist what happened, which means she needs to recreate her paintings in just three months without her gallerist knowing. So she begs her way into this exclusive artist colony in upstate New York called Pine City, which is best known as the place where this legendary performance artist, Carrie Logan, killed herself. And she gets assigned to Carrie Logan's former studio and slowly begins to discover that not all is as it seems at Pine City and that what happened to Carrie Logan might not be the official what the you know the official story is. So it's this really twisty page turner, but it's also a this really intelligent meditation on identity and authorship and authenticity in art. So there are some overlapping themes with sirens and muses, but again, this is a book that's like super, you know, edge of your seat thriller. So if you're in the mood for that and also a book about art, this is a really good pick. Oh my gosh. I'm trying not to be distracting and try to open it up to like look at the cover because you you have me already. I, I have been craving some like very plot driven stories and feel like all I want is like thrillers that I can finish in a day. And this mm-hmm. sounds like it is perfect. Oh, the bell. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I read it in a day. Perfect. I, I will definitely be getting this book. I'm so glad that you brought it. And I love your stack. Like there's so much to enjoy, not only just like a character driven coming of age story, but we also have some thrillers and and big moral dilemmas around art Mm -hmm. too which I 
really, really appreciate. As we close out, Antonia, I just want to tell you, your book is one of my favorites of the year. I read like over 100 books a year, and I'm very, very particular about what I look for in my stories. But I truly cried when I ended the book only because this is honest to God, like my husband came up and I was getting near the end and I could see like my percentage on my Kindle book. And I was like, I just, I don't know why I'm crying. And I don't, I just don't want this story to end. I don't want to be done with these characters. It provoked something in me. I think just the think pieces about art and what it means to be artistic. And as someone who's always in pursuit of something creative, although I am in no way regarding myself as an artist, I think that the idea and the exploration around creativity was just so beautifully done. I, I really, really genuinely hope like, all of our listeners pick up the book because I think it gave me so much to think about and it, it reminded me of a different time. It just transported me somewhere. And I would love to talk about, you know, what you are really proud of with this project or just with your writing career in general. I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that this is a novel that has seemed to resonate with people from all walks of life. So I've heard from teenagers who love the book. Um, I've heard from grandmas who love the book, um, and I've heard from kind of everyone, everywhere in between. So it, it does seem like it, this is a book that has something for everyone, um, and that makes me really happy. And I'm I'm just really grateful to you for reading it and enjoying it and having me on the podcast. Uh, this is, you know, the number one highlight of publishing a book, which is a terrifying experience, mm. is hearing from readers um, and you know, hearing from readers who felt moved by the novel. So this is why I do what I do. So thank you. Well, thank you, Antonia. Everyone, Sirens and Muses is on bookstore shelves now. It's actually technically almost a backlist book. So definitely pick it up. And I'm so glad that I got to share some time with you today, Antonia. Thank you so much. 